quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Whether that means you start with one single family or a duplex or whatnot, get started. And then from there, you just iterate and grow. So yeah, not rocket science at the end of the day, but I think this business, you got to really just surround yourself with the right folks. Welcome to the best ever show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hello, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Ash Patel and I'm with today's guest, Shane Thomas. Shane is joining us from Houston, Texas. He is a co-founder and managing partner of Catalyst Equity Partners. They specialize in multifamily real estate and repositioning well-located assets. Shane's portfolio consists of nine properties with 1,900 units, totaling $300 million of assets under management. Shane, thank you for joining us, and how are you today? Hey, I'm glad to be here, Ash. Thanks for having me. Doing well. It's our pleasure. Before we get started, can you give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Yeah, thanks for that intro. Like you said, based in Houston, Texas, we've been doing multifamily for about seven years now. Focus on the value add space, anywhere from class C to class A assets. Started off my career as a CPA in management consulting, and then I started investing in real estate in 2010 before pivoting. I was mostly single family before pivoting to multifamily. We've got a team of seven full-time folks. We have construction management in-house. So multifamilies are bread and butter. We do construction for third parties as well. So we started that business service. And then I'm a passive investor in several deals, multifamily and non-multifamily, some hotels and some other commercial real estate. Man, that's a lot to cover. Let's get started. The most striking thing about what you said was that you manage construction for other people. So my question to you is, what do you want to be when you grow up, a syndicator or a construction company? The way we look at it is we want to be a real estate company that has multiple service offerings. I think at the end of the day, our focus is on acquisitions and asset management. That's our bread and butter. We enjoy construction. And this wasn't like we were doing construction management on our own deals for several years. Then we hired someone that is an expert in that field to do it for our own properties in-house the last couple of years. And then we started getting some requests to do it from peers and whatnot. I'm of the mindset that we're going to hire to build that vertical of our business so that it could eventually run on its own. But the core of our business is going to be multifamily or real estate acquisitions and asset management. I would imagine you get some economies of scale by growing that construction business as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think it came down to... A, we wanted control and the ability to manage our costs effectively and speed. I think those were the things that we just felt like when we were using GCs when we started five, six years ago, the work would eventually get done, but oftentimes not on time and on budget. And that's a problem, especially when most of our deals have been heavier value adds where we've got draws with the lender, timelines, et cetera. So I think it provides a lot of control and our 
philosophy is you try to do it the McDonald's way and every unit's the same, or we've got two different versions and try to source the materials in bulk. And we've tested it a lot internally. And now we're able to offer some services to third parties. And again, we're staking within our wheelhouse. We're doing multifamily value add, and, and that's what we're going to focus on, at least in the beginning. Shane, is this a slippery slope? Will you start property managing for other syndicators as well? It's a great question. We don't have property management vertically integrated just yet. I think we're at the scale right now with close to 2,000 units that it is a question and a legit one. It's something that I don't see in the immediate short term, but long term, as we grow our portfolio, it's something that we may consider. And again, I think we would take the same approach that we did with construction. We would do it as if there's no third party services yet. We're going to do it for ourselves, figure it out, basically make the mistakes and get the lessons learned internally before we ever think about doing anything for third parties. Got it. What's your bottleneck currently? Is it deals, capital? That's a great question. I think if it was a year ago, I would say there was plenty of deals. Now it seems like both. And we're at that point in the market right now where there's obviously very little deal flow in general, relatively speaking. And it's hard to say if capital is an issue. I think from anecdotal points, I'm hearing that it's harder to raise money. And, and I definitely can understand that. And I think maybe our deal sizes may need to be a little bit smaller going forward. But I think right now it's twofold, lack of deals. And I think there's a lot more uncertainty. So we've kind of built our business stair step, did a small deal, raised some money, and then we've grown. And our last two deals were our biggest ever and we got them done. But I think we're at a time in the market where commercial real estate isn't getting the best press. And I think there's a lot of questions and valid ones. And I think it's an opportunity for those that have experience to outshine. And not that we've been doing it for decades, but the way that we've built our company is that we are going to be doing this for decades in the future. So we've always put long-term results over anything short-term. But yeah, our biggest bottleneck right now is that we're doing, I think, more work than we've ever done in the last five, six years and very little to show for it. So we're starting to see some opportunities, um, some cracks, and hopefully we'll be able to get a deal and then answer that question once we go through that process a little better. Yeah, that's a grim picture you painted. And you're right about the headlines. Every day in the news, it's always commercial real estate, defaulting on loans, special servicing, office buildings going dark. And investor sentiment is all over the board. What are you doing to cultivate your investors? So that when you do have that deal, they're ready to pounce. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great question. And I'd like to say that we're doing something different than we were the last six, seven years. But the quite honest answer is that we're just doing a lot of the same, which is continuing to communicate, getting in front of these questions. So we've always done yearly webinars on all my deals. We give out consistent monthly reports. The first year of acquisition, we do a six-month takeover webinar, and then every year we do a yearly webinar. And before, it was more, hey, this is the state of your deal. And now we're really overlaying that with, here's the state of the market. We understand that a lot of our investors are in several deals, and not all of them are going perfectly. But you know, this is the state of the market. This is the reality. This is how we're positioning ourselves. So we're just doubling down on that and really trying to get in front. So we send out regular newsletters. 
We gave a market update where this is high level what the market is. We give our portfolio update. And what I try to educate folks is that at the end of the day, yes, a lot of this data that you see in press is on a national level, but you can't just paint an industry with one brush. So I think I've been able to show that for the most part with our portfolio performance and how we're doing things asset management wise and whatnot. So it's really, I started in the business on the multifamily side as a passive investor, invested in several deals. And one of my biggest pet peeves was some folks just didn't communicate. So our motto at our company is that if people hear too much from us, that's okay. We'd rather over-communicate than under-communicate and we're consistent and we've let folks know that, hey, deal flow is a little bit lower now, but right now we're seeing a lot better pricing than we've seen in the last couple of years. And we've done informal surveys to get a gauge of where our investors are at. So just continue to communicate, make sure that folks know that we're still looking for deals and we're still asset management deals. Shane, how often do you communicate with investors and then your potential investors? I would say our current investors get an email from us once a month. We just got off our financials calls this morning and at the end of the month with uh, an overview summary. So every month, our current investors get an email update. Like I said, we do the webinars mid-year and, and yearly. And then our prospective investors, we send out a newsletter, which is bi-monthly. So those are generally the touch points. And then obviously, if you're a brand new investor, we have our process to have a call with them and whatnot. But if you're in our database, you get an email from us every two months. And we're kind of tweaking the process. If we need to communicate more, we will and working through some things. But our current investors every month get a touch point from us. Yeah, I like that. Every two months. I've had to unsubscribe from people that sent out daily newsletters. That's a Just rough thing. Much, it's yeah, a I long mean, newsletter too. Yep. You mentioned you're seeing better pricing. Is that relative to interest rates? I get it. The prices are down, but is that really due to the interest rates being up? Yeah, I think it's, I'm not going to say a one for one correlation, you know, I mean, yeah. I think if, if that was the case, pricing would have to come down. A lot, but just relative to, you know, the peak, you know, end of 21 or early 2022, prices are down because interest rates are up significantly. And it's interesting, right? You know, when, when prices were, were going up, you know, there was just so many people wanting to buy and interest rates were low and it was enabling that. And just interesting where, you know, right now I'm seeing pricing anywhere from 10 to some cases, 25%. And there's not that many people getting too excited because it's hard to make these leverage deals work. I'm starting to see what feels like a plateau in terms of cap rates, you know, expanding on more of the class A stuff. It feels like we've got to a level where it feels relatively sticky, but I think on some of the older vintage stuff, there's a little bit room to go in my opinion. And quite frankly, it seems like it's going back to fundamentals of finance and real estate. People are starting to bake in, hey, there needs to be a risk premium for like a 1960s or 70s deal versus something that was put in the ground 10 years ago. And I think that's slowly starting to reflect in the marketplace. Whereas 24 months ago, you're getting the same yield on totally different risk assets. So I'm excited about the opportunity. I think it is definitely challenging given where rates are and where leverage is. It's fortunately on the multifamily side, We've got Fannie and Freddie, the agencies. So there is a lender. I think you just got to be creative on how to buy these deals. And the one thing we know that everyone knows is that you can't change 
the price you pay, but you can always change your financing. So I think that's where we're really looking for, for basis. And I think we're also using it as an opportunity to not to re-educate, but to set investor expectations that the return profile may be a little different than it was 24 months ago or 48 months ago and whatnot, where it went from a lot of cash flow and not a whole lot of upside to a lot of more upside, a little bit of cash flow. And maybe it's the risk profile is different for the next 24 months. Maybe it's we're buying at a really discount to replacement cost and cash flow is minimal to none in the next 18 to 24 months, but the rent growth and potential is, is great on the back end. So I think I've always been a proponent of being in the game. I think we were in three best in finals in the last two to three weeks, you know, and it's like any sport, right? I mean, you can't really play unless you're in it. So that's what we're doing. And I legitimately think we're working harder than we've worked in the last five years. Yeah. So we don't know what the new normal is. And I love your perspective on that. Are you concerned that the same stupid money that was winning on these deals against you is still there, right? We're all waiting for prices to come down and sellers may not feel a whole lot of pain yet, but there's still those new operators, those inexperienced operators, or those operators that just have an abundance of capital willing to throw excess money at deals for low to no returns. Is that a concern of yours? I would say at this point in time, no. It feels like it's almost like a frozen market in some respects, but we've spent some time this year spreading our wings a little bit, talking to private equity and family offices and whatnot. And it feels like there is a lot of capital. So when and if rates do come down at some point in time, I do think there's going to be a lot of capital clamoring for deals. My gut tells me that this ride the last little while with these rates going up and really impacting people, I feel like it's going to be ingrained in a lot of people's memories for at least for the next little short term. And I would expect folks to, quite frankly, put a risk premium on assets. So there's going to be a lot of capital. But I think that capital is really going to look for a flight to safety and it's not going to be as, for lack of a better word, dumb as it was 24 months ago where you go buy a C-class deal at a 3.2 cap. I don't think we're going to see that in at least the next little while. So, But I do think there's a lot of capital and just based on data that I've read and just talking to folks. And it's interesting, right? You asked the question, when are people going to start coming in? I think that's the million dollar question that no one knows. Even if you talk to some of the bigger shops, they're almost like waiting for some first mover to show a Blackstone or a KKR to start, and then they'll all get in. But I think my personal opinion feels like things got slow probably a year ago from now. And I think we're closer to where things are going to start ramping up in terms of deals. I think A, we're nearing the end of the Fed tightening cycle and B, there's going to be some deals that are holding on, whether they're floating rate debt or whatnot, that are going to need a transact zone. So I feel like we're kind of going to come out of the stalemate shortly. Yeah, Shane, I'm going to push back on you a little bit. And I've got this theory that it's predominantly real estate people and Wall Street people that think interest rates are coming down soon. You mentioned you think the Fed is at the end of tightening. Why do you think that? I think it's clear by their comments that, yes, there may be one or two more, but I think they made it clear that we're nearing the end. What I would like to clarify is I don't think rates are coming down quickly. 
But I think the challenge that as a buyer and as a seller over the last 12 months is that I think you mentioned that there's no new norm right now. So I think what's going to help is that once we get to a place where, okay, we kind of know rates are going to be here, then the new rules of the game will be written. And then I think you'll start seeing some activity happen. But I would say, I do think rates will eventually come down, but I think a lot of folks are expecting early 2024, but I think we're in this climate for a while. Just based on even when folks are offering on deals, we had a couple of deals that we sold and whatnot. It was just like, hey, we're going to wait till the next Fed meeting to decide on what we're going to offer. And I think that reality is going to change in the next three to four months. We'll get back to the show with the first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Are you tired of spending hours managing your rental properties? Inago is here to simplify your life as a landlord or property owner with their free property management software. With Inago, you can say goodbye to complex and costly solutions. Inago is designed with simplicity in mind, focusing on the features that matter to you. From tenant screening and lease signing, to rent collection and work order management, Anago has got you covered. They offer a seamless interface and dedicated support representatives to assist you in every step of the way. Join thousands of satisfied landlords and start streamlining your property management tasks today with Anago. Plus, you'll get a $25 Amazon gift card just for using Anago. Visit anago.com forward slash best ever to get started and reclaim your time and sanity. That's I-N-N-A-G-O dot com forward slash best ever. Deciding how to invest your capital is more challenging than ever. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company with a solid track record and that has thrived through various economic cycles. Companies like BAM Capital. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator that has delivered a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital has never missed a preferred payment never lost an LP's investment, and never called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital is currently raising capital for a fund designed for accredited investors, targeting a 15 to 20% IRR and a 2 to 2.5x equity multiple to its investors over a three to five year hold period. If you're an accredited investor and you want to learn more about multifamily investment opportunities with BAM Capital, visit capital.thebamcompanies.com. Again, that's capital dot the bam companies.com best ever listeners i'm sure you know this but these are just our opinions no one has a clue of what's really going to happen but when somebody tells you that rates will start coming down in q4 of 2023 i would take that with some skepticism how do you know that so i'm not holding you to it by any means i just wanted to get your opinion and thank you for that you mentioned earlier shane about pivoting maybe into smaller deals what are you doing? Because it seems like you've got a very specific niche. You buy properties that are maybe two to 300 units a piece. Yeah, right? roughly 200. Yep, yep, 200. Yeah. What are you doing to think outside the box, pivot, maybe different asset classes, size of deals? When you're brainstorming, what are you looking at? I think we're focused on multifamily because I think there's going to be opportunity and that's what we're good at. That said, I've started investing in hotels as an LP. Just to give an example. So just from a more of a cash flow perspective. So just like when I started multifamily on the LP side, did it from a passive investor standpoint, learned and then understood the nuances and then decided to go on the GP side. 
And that's the same approach. So we're kind of looking at different asset classes just to kind of get our feet wet and more complement what we can offer on the multifamily side. I think what I don't want to do is be a jack of all trades. I really do believe that at this stage in our business, in our career, we've built a good track record of multifamily and we're going to start seeing deal flow because of our track record and reputation for that. But we also don't want to be a one trick pony. So it's a fine balance because as you know, there's a lot of shiny objects out there and whatnot. So we're being very specific on what we focus on. And so hotels is one area that again, totally different risk profile than multifamily. And I'm working with operators in that space that have been doing it for a long time. We're also looking at oftentimes we didn't want to do some of these smaller deals because you didn't get the economies of scale or, or whatnot. But I think sub 100 units, there could be some opportunity in that area that we previously wouldn't look on. But now we've got enough of a portfolio in Dallas and Houston that we can bolt on a 80 unit. We've got the construction expertise in-house. So we've developed as a company where we're able to do more. And then there's a few other asset classes. We've done a little bit of land stuff, build to rent, single family. There's a few things. We got some balls in the air, you know, if you will. Hold on. I got to push back on a lot of things here. I love what you said. You're going to be slumming into the sub 100 unit, but great. Why not look at different things, right? You don't want to be a jack of all trades, but you're looking at build to rent. You're looking at all these other asset classes, right? So I feel a little bit of a struggle in deciding whether to stay the course or to really pivot, right? And I, I totally get that. I, I do want to ask, what are the returns? What's the attraction to the hotel investments? For me, it's really cash flow. We're buying hotels. These are limited service hotels by close to a 10 cap with six and a half, seven percent interest rate. So you got positive leverage there. You're looking at year one cash on cash returns of seven, eight percent. You're looking at at least again projected returns two and a half, two point seven five equity multiple over five years, where generally multifamilies on the two side. I think the limited service, there's just an opportunity in that space. We're not looking at these flagship type hotels. So I just think from a risk reward standpoint, and again, I'm newer into it, but the cash flow out of the gate is much better than what we're getting in multifamily. So that's really what attracted me to it. So I think there's definitely higher risk, but I think it's priced in given that we're buying at four to 500 basis points, higher cap rate than multifamily. Understood. Uh, and in these performers, do they take into account the PIP or the property improvement plan yep. list and the expenses incurred yep. with that? Okay. Yep. Yep. And just for the best of our listeners, these are the thorns of owning a hotel. It's where the parent company will come in and make you restripe the parking lot, change the doorknobs, change the toilets, change the mirrors, change the artwork to yeah. other generic artwork yeah. just to be consistent. And often you're buying these from a subsidiary of that parent company. So they're double dipping. It's just a massive expense that certainly needs to be considered. Now I'm going to push back a little bit more. Why not look at retail, industrial, potentially office? It's a good question. I stated hotels and BTR because those are the ones that we've made a little bit more progress in. Going back to my earlier comment, I think there's only so much you can do. So we just said, hey, we'll focus on these things, learn as much as we can industrial. I've always viewed it positively, but I wouldn't know where to start, to be honest with you at this stage. So it's just balancing that jack of all trades, don't get distracted versus we've got our main focus 
And then there's a few other pet projects that we're working on, but we don't want a hundred pet projects and no focus. So that's really, it's just a function of time. We had relationships in hotels and we have relationships in BTR. So there's more information that we can glean versus industrial would be just a steeper slope. Yeah. And I'm very biased because I am a non-residential commercial investor. Right. So I buy retail, office, industrial, medical, lane development. So that was my reason for pushing back. You've had an incredible run where you've got $300 million of assets under management. What's one thing that you look back and you wish you did differently that would have helped you scale faster? That's a great question. I think hiring folks sooner is one thing that I think when we were starting the company, me and my partner pretty much did everything under the sun. And I think at this stage, we try to hire ahead. So we've learned that over the last four or five years. But I think the first two, three years at that time, I still had a full-time job and trying to figure this out evenings and weekends and whatnot, and just not surrounding ourselves with the folks that were experienced in building businesses and whatnot. Whereas now our whole ecosystem has changed. But I think that's really one thing I would change is hire and delegate tasks sooner. We've always been process oriented and whatnot and try to document everything. But looking back, I think the last two to three years, we've hired a good amount. But our first two, three years, I think if we hired a few more folks, we would have been able to do a little bit more. Very valuable advice. Did you struggle on your first hire? Yeah. Hiring is not easy at all. I think in some ways we still struggle, but yeah, the first hire that at least we made was really an admin. We went through multiple iterations. We tried VA, we tried a couple of different VAs and whatnot and pros and cons. We still use a VA on certain things, but yeah, it's, it's been a lot of trial and error. And I think I've done a lot of interviewing in my past life, but it's a little different on this side. And I think referrals go a long way. And so now we really try to socialize it within our communities and our network. But your company has its own personality and culture and want to make sure that person can fit the culture. And I think historically, I was just like anything in my life, like hustle and work hard. I could mold this person into who I needed to be. And I think the more and more that I've gained experience, I love that drive and hustle. But I think I want to be hiring folks that are pretty much experts in what we're trying to get them to do. And I think that mindset change in the last year has really helped because we've struggled with the person that's wanting to do it, but just doesn't have the capability. So I think that's another lesson learned that would have changed. Yeah, that's important. Obviously, no one's going to work as hard as you. So you're not going to be able to find a you. <laughs> right. It's a hard lesson for a lot of people. But thanks for sharing that because anybody that's out there that's inundated and you're on the fence if you should hire somebody or not, if you have the capability and the funding to hire somebody, by all means, stop asking that question. If you have to ask it, the answer is yes, especially your first hire. And then it becomes like a drug. Oh my God, I can offload stuff to this other human and it clears up my plate a little bit and just keep repeating that, right? right. If you're inundated and you don't have the funding to hire somebody, you got a question, are you spinning your wheels in the right direction, right? Yeah. Because you yeah, shouldn't yeah. be that inundated without having money coming in to pay somebody else to offload that. What's the biggest mistake that you've made in your entire real estate career? Another good question. There are several, and I think fortunately I learned a lot of them a long time ago, even in my single family days. But I think the biggest mistake relative to what we do now is 
in the beginning, undercapitalizing deals. You don't know what you don't know in the beginning, but I remember our first deal that we bought, our rehab budget was probably 50 or 60% of what it should be. At that time, you're trying to balance returns versus how much improvements you need to do and stuff like that. And what a lot of people just gloss over in this industry. Some of these buildings are 50, 60, 70 years old. And a lot of the stuff is below the line. And if you have a five-year business plan, really need to have a five-year capital plan, not a two-year value-add plan. So I think those lessons we learned on our first deal and I harped on it on every single deal afterwards. So we always overcapitalize our deals. And quite frankly, Ash, I thought I did a great job. And some of our deals were on year five or year six of our whole. And we're like, wow, we thought we overcapitalized our deal. But six years later, 1960s property stuff happened. Unfortunately, we refinanced one of them. So we were able to recap the deal and put some money. But I think that's one of the biggest lessons I've learned. In the last and what's the solution? When you run out of rental money in a year or so into your project, do you go back to investors and say, hey guys, we need more money? Do you liquidate investors? Fortunately, we've never went back to investors for any money whatsoever. So we just got to manage our distributions as one lever. You're managing cash flow versus operating needs. And I think we've done a good job of that and just got to tighten the screws. And what we do is, like I said, I'm a former CPA, but these are capital intensive businesses and we love our property managers, but they're doing their accounting just to get it done, close the books and send you the financials. And a lot of folks just don't have the experience to understand where's all the ins and outs. This is tens of hundreds of thousands of dollars going back and forth and draws and whatnot. So I have a fractional CFO that reviews our books across our entire portfolio we spend a day with him a month and we review everything and cash in and out, our cash needs. And we literally go through and say, okay, we're going to hold this deal for another 36 months. We know we've got X sources of cash, but we need 300K of CapEx to hold this deal for three years, reserve that this is what's available. So it's really managing cash, understanding your properties, assessing your properties. I think everyone has city inspections and whatnot, but as an owner, unfortunately, now that we've got construction in-house, we go and we do semi-annual inspections of all our buildings because the city looks at it through their lens. But we got to look at it from a, how are we going to keep this asset, give it longevity? And then the other option is refinance. I think that gives you flexibility. So if we refinance, we're definitely using that as an opportunity to recap the deal. Knowing what you know now, would you have scaled at the same rate or would you have slowed down or gone faster? Great question. I think the rate that we went was a good rate. I know guys that started three years after us that have three X the number of units and burning and turning and whatnot. And we've done nine deals in six years and we've always been in the game tweaking our formula. Sure, could we have gone faster? But I think one of the things I said in the beginning is we've never looked at this as a sprint. I'm 38 years old and I plan to do this for the next three decades because I love it. And we try to make sure that we make long-term decisions. So there's always going to be deals and I'm pretty happy. I think the hiring and whatnot, those are different things, but in terms of our pace, I feel good. Could have done it faster. Sure. But you're always going to have growing pains, right? Yeah. Shane, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? You got to take action and surround yourself with folks. I know it's cliche, but I did not have a network or ecosystem 10 years ago. And it was a slow, slow grind trying to figure it out yourself. 
surround yourself with those folks and you'll see that you'll get results faster and you got to start. Whether that means you start with one single family or a duplex or whatnot, get started. And then from there, you just iterate and grow. So yeah, not rocket science at the end of the day, but I think this business, you got to really just surround yourself with the right folks. Shane, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Sure. All right. What's the best ever book you recently read? So I'm actually just finishing up King of Capital, Blackstone, Steve Schwartzman's book. I think it's very fitting for where we are right now. Walks through Blackstone from inception in the 80s to the rise and the fall. And it's more of a private equity kind of LBO leverage buyout type book, but a lot of parallels to real estate and the credit crunch. So I thought it was fascinating just to see the rise and, and obviously their household name now. Shane, what's the best ever way you like to give back? We give back our time via various volunteering work in our community here locally. But I think the one that I'm most proud of is that there's a charity that we donate to in South India for underprivileged kids. Um, so my wife and I, we started that before we got married and we've been a regular contributor to that. So underprivileged kids, kids education is, is stuff that's near and dear to our heart. And Shane, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you? I'm available on LinkedIn, Shane Thomas. You should be able to find me. Our website is catequity.com, C-A-T-Equity.com. And you can send me an email at Shane at catequity.com and would be happy to connect with anybody. Yeah, Shane, thank you for your time today. I wanted to get more into your rise and how you got started, but we had a phenomenal conversation. Thanks for sharing your thoughts on the current market, thoughts about pivoting, investor sentiment, all of that. So thank you so much for your time. No, I appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. Best ever listeners, thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Share this podcast with someone you think can benefit from it. Also, follow, subscribe, and have a best ever day. Hi, best ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and best ever content? Well, if so... Join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the best ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.